Okay, here's what I'm going to need. Uh, let me see. I'm going to need people in the back row to tell me if they can't hear. So if I start going quiet, I need you to raise your hand in the back. Don't do two hands. I'm going to think you're worshiping. Just do one. <laughs> no, really. So if you start, if you can't hear me in the back, just start raising your hand, and I'll try to project. Can everyone hear me so far right now? Yeah, okay. Actually, you're saying, why did they put up a mic? Uh, there's no power. Uh, this isn't faith, by the way. Uh, we're recording this by battery for the podcast, and we're actually filming this. So, oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. So, for all of you joining us online, good morning. <laughs> we're really glad that you are here this morning. And uh, this is week two in the book of Ephesians. And so, if you've got your paper Bible or you've got a PDA of any sort, open it up. Because we are going to dive in. As Lori preached last week, she gave us an introduction to the book of Ephesians. And then she walked through one of the grand themes in the book of Ephesians. But now we're going to start doing sort of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now let me begin by saying this. Why did we choose the book of Ephesians for the major study this year? It's simple. If there is one book in the New Testament that focuses its whole energy on the issue of unity... And what unity is grounded in, and what unity is, and what unity looks like practically, it is the book of Ephesians. And since our theme is we're all in this together, it is our goal, it is our prayer that we as a family, we as a church, would listen so carefully to the book of Ephesians, and not only listen, but begin to do what unity really looks like according to Scripture. And so we're going to begin right now in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. And just so you know, I want to say this today too. In the summer, we did this series called We the People. And in that series, I preached through this message, this first group of verses. And I'm going to re-preach much of that message because something or nothing has changed in 15 weeks. So I want you to understand that we covered this in the summer, but I'm going to take it in a few different directions this morning. So here's how the scriptures begin in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's all listen together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. As I said in the summer, and I want to start right here again, already in one verse, Paul declares something so powerful over us. He says, to the church, to each person, To the whole community, he says, you already are. You at this moment are one thing. You and we together are saints. You are holy ones. You are set apart by God and you're set apart for mission. Let me declare this again emphatically. Every Christian is a saint. This is not the idea that many of us think about when we think about sainthood. Many of us who grew up in other traditions think about sainthood as someone who lives their whole life so profoundly religious and then they die and they sort of get like this first class status and the rest of us sit in economy. No. Sainthood means that you have become a Christian and Jesus has made you holy. Period. At this moment, according to the scriptures, every one of you who are a Christian here this morning are positionally before God without sin. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are perfect before God the Father. Let me say this again so we can see this, feel this, experience this. 
Through Jesus Christ, at this moment, you, we together, are perfect. We are without sin. He now sees you, that is, God sees you, the way that we will fully be in the new heavens and the new earth. Our togetherness is bound together in the idea that we, as a community, and every church that loves Jesus around the world, are saints. But sainthood doesn't just mean that we are perfect before God the Father. The idea of saint or holy one also means set apart. And the amazing thing about the Christian movement is this, that God himself chooses, because he is love, to include us in his mission into a world that is bound in darkness. We are together, both positionally and missionally, saints. It is privilege and it is responsibility. He says, to those who are gathering in Ephesus. Remember what Lori taught last week? Ephesus was one of the great multicultural cities of its day, full of money and power. But not only that, it was the center of New Age and occultic thinking. It was the center of dark spirituality. And I love that Paul begins by saying to that church, gathering 2,000 years ago, to you who already are light in the greatest of darkness, to you who are in Christ Jesus. Never forget C4 this morning that Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. He's the roof of our faith. He's the foundation of our faith. We not only trust in him intellectually, we as Christians live our life out of him. Like I preached in the summer from another author, like roots are only found in soil and fish are only found in water and vines only come from branches and birds have to fly in the air. So we as Christians, oh, faith, almost. So we Christians, so we Christians live our life out of Jesus Christ and no one else. We exist out of no one else. Stop this morning and hear this afresh. Really stop and reflect on this. Do you see already the undeserved reality in one verse? That you and that we together are in Jesus. And because we are in him, we get to be called saints. How quickly this undermines the modern notion of self-sufficiency. That we are good because of what we do or who we are or, or what we've produced. And Christianity cries out, no, never, never, never. See, if you begin even as a Christian to live beyond Jesus, you will end up looking to the world or yourself or your family or your education or your history or even evil for guidance and inspiration and strength. And you will become something you were never supposed to be. But here we are seen as saints living out of Christ. Paul says in verse 2 these words, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Grace, undeserved mercy that has already been spilled over every single life that has said yes. And peace, the old famous Jewish word shalom, which means wholeness. Don't you know? Can't you hear? Do you live out of this place? 
that you, if you are a Christian here this morning, have peace between you and God the Father. You no longer are a rebel. We together no longer are segregated or separated from him. We have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. And that peace is only in part now because shalom is coming in the future. Jesus' death on the cross was the beginning of the end of all wickedness. And the peace that is coming will restore all of creation because that is the type of God we worship in this church. Grace and peace over you. See, this is our identity together. And it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps going in verse 3. If you've got a Bible, read along. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. At this moment, Paul breaks out in worship. At this moment, he begins to sing in his letter. He says, blessed is God. This is a cry of worship. He's saying God is great and God is worth my honor and my worship. Actually, this is a quote from Psalm 41.13. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, for everlasting and everlasting, and amen and amen. See, Paul, before he gets to our togetherness, Paul, before he gets to the conversation, always starts with the primacy of God. Christians always start with God before we start with ourselves or the world. Paul says, praise him for who he is and what he's already done and what he's doing right now and what he's going to do. Oh God, he's saying, I was made. I was made to worship you. I was made to hallow your name. I become joy. I become fully alive. I become fully a human being when I choose not to touch your glory or do the thing called worship to myself because I can't handle worship. But you, God, you can, hurt, you can handle worship. And you, when I give this back to you, I know not only my position, I know the reason why I was made. I've been made to know you and worship you. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He breaks out in this praise. And it's amazing because this is where the turn happens. He says, this God who is sovereign, and this God who is almighty, and this God who deserves all blessing, has chosen, listen, has chosen to turn around to people like us sitting here today, and he's decided out of love to bless us. And I want you to notice where he chooses to bless us. This is exactly what Lori preached on last week. And for time and time again, when I read this passage, I did not fully catch. I missed the power of what he'd said. He said that he had blessed us in the heavenly places in Christ. This matters so much to your identity if you're a Christian here. This matters to our togetherness. See, he does this in heavenly places. Heavenly places for Paul is not just heaven. The heavenly places in Paul is the space and place, the unseen world, where not only God and his angels are, but also where Satan and his demons are that war over the souls and lives of every generation of our family called humans, and even war over creation. Hear this this morning, O Christian. God, out of love, has blessed us in the middle of a battle zone. God has declared us right in the presence of our enemies. It is what's said in the Psalms, God has prepared a table in the presence of my enemies. 
It's in that space, it's in that place where it is declared in front of Lucifer and all of his angels, I have decided that these people are mine and they are included in Christ and you can't have them anymore. Power when you understand where we have been blessed. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says in verse 6, And God raised us up in Christ Jesus, and we have been seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, this is how I love this. It's saying that we are seated with Jesus Christ. And since we are positionally seated with Jesus Christ, we as C4, and we the people, and we together, and you by yourself can say, when the evil one shows up at 3 a.m., Or when something shows up that hates Jesus, you can declare not out of your own self, but out of something else that you have an authority that is not your own. And you can say, I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. It has already been declared to you that I am owned. You don't own me. You cannot have me. You will never have me again. God has already stripped you of your power and made mockery of you. Look upon the one I sit in, in the heavenly realms. Deal with him, not with me. Our togetherness as this church... And our togetherness with the global church is because we are in Christ, we've been made saints, and in the presence of incarnate evil, we've been declared whole. Now, that's not just the beginning. There's so much more. Paul's far from done. In verse 4, he says this. He says, For he, that is God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I love this. Listen afresh again to the scriptures. God chose. God called. God elected. By God. For God. Through God. With God. The focus here is on God's own initiative and what God has already accomplished and what God is going to maintain. Stop here and embrace the truth over you. We together, I love this, we are the focus of God's holy love. We are the focus of God's own initiative. We are the focus of God's own accomplishments. We are the focus of God's perfect maintenance. Before time existed, before the seven days, before the fruit in Adam and Eve, before light and darkness came to be, before, before, before God. God promised within himself that he would choose us and save us and hold us and never let us go. Like I preach in the summer, I say it again. I want to live my life. I want my identity and I want the unity of this church and any church I am part of in the future to be grounded in and held by the hand that can never falter, that can never let me go, that can never be pried open by another force or even be pried open by my own sin. Oh Jesus, hold me in the election of God. Such power when you realize that God looked at you and said, yes. Such identity change, such togetherness, when we realize there is no power, including our own power, to remove us from the love of God. Oh, the the emotional energy so many Christians spend trying to make sure that God is okay with them. God is okay with you. Why? Because he decided to love you when you weren't looking for him. It's what Paul said in Romans 8, 29. 
For God foreknew, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers and sisters. Foreknew in the Bible, by the way, means intimately to know. Like, don't miss the power of what Paul is saying here. Paul is not just saying that this is foresight. This is foreordination. This is God's decision to come after us. Like I've preached many times before, the word to know in the Bible is where we get our idea of sex between a husband and a wife. It's one thing to say, I know about that concept. It's another thing to experience it. And so this is like the idea where God comes and says, I not only know you, no, no, I have known you before the beginning of time. I have decided to encounter you before the beginning of time. It's what Paul actually draws on from Amos 3.2. He says, you have I only known. Catch this, in Amos 3.2, Paul talking, I'm sorry, Amos talking about Israel. This is how God speaks. He says, you only have I known, chosen, sympathized with, loved out of all the families of the earth. Paul is declaring here over the church and over individuals that he chose us beforehand, that God has done all of this, and he's done it to secure our eternal glory. And this again is the needed, listen please, this again is the needed pill to cure the human race of religion. Religion teaches all of us that God likes us by what we do. If you pray five times a day, if you take communion enough, if you go to confession, if you burn enough candles to your ancestors, if you're spiritual enough, if you give enough money away, then God really likes you. And Christianity cries out, no, never. Religion teaches me, 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 me. Look at what I have done, God. How pleased you must be with me. And Christianity comes along and says, no, we will never please God, for he is holy and we are not. God, out of love, comes for us and clears the way back to him. Never the opposite. The idea of being called and chosen removes any sinful inhibition in our lives to think that we had something to do with God's love towards us. We respond to it. But we never initiate it. God says through his word that he calls us, he chooses us, and he chooses us to be blameless. Can I say this again this morning as I did in the summer? You are blameless right now. Hear this please. You, if you are a Christian, are blameless now. So many of us do not approach God because we don't think we are blameless. So many of us choose not to pray, do devotions, come to connect group, do community because we think because we screwed up the night before or we're still struggling with a habitual sin that God is so fed up with us, he doesn't want to see us. No, Christian, you are blameless because of Jesus now. Do not buy into the lie that you are not blameless. You are not dirty. You are not perverted. You are not separated. Since you are chosen and since you are a saint and since you are blameless, go to him in your time of good, bad in your time of need. We are chosen through Jesus Christ according to his pleasure and his will. I love this. If you read the scriptures, if you have them in front of you, in verse 4, look at it. It says, in love. In love. In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. What type of love is this? It's agape love. It's God's love. It's biblical love. Like I've preached before, let me do it again. What's love? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us the type of love that motivates God. Love is patient and love is kind. 
Love does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Christian, seeker, hear this this morning. Because God is patient with us, and because God decided to be kind towards us, and since God does not envy, isn't boastful, and is never sinfully proud, and since he never dishonors people, and since God is not self-seeking, and since God is not easily angered, oh, can I say that again? And since God is not easily angered, and since God chooses to keep no record of wrongs, and since, since God does not love evil, but he is truth, and since God protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres, because of all that, he predestined us. He set us apart. He limited us. He appointed us. He determined beforehand we get to know him. He destined and foreordained our connection with him. And what is the biggest expression of that? Well, Paul uses the image of adoption. Now, many of you have been adopted. And you know the pain of that experience. You know the joy of that experience, some of you, not all of you. But adoption in its purest form is a powerful image for the church. Because an adopted child has no family any longer. Or has a family that cannot take care of them any longer. And so, in its purest form, the idea is a family that is loving and healthy. Says, I choose to take you to be one of us. Though you can't demand it. Think about this. Adopted children cannot come and say, you must adopt me. No, no. A family comes out of their own grace. Out of their own peace. Out of their own mercy. And says these words. I choose you to be part of my family. And Paul says on a supernatural level that God says to us, because he is good and because he is loving, I choose to adopt you into my family. You now are my son or my daughter. You weren't my son or my daughter, but now you are. Now the thing that's scary about this is this. I get really nervous as a human being when someone can do anything they want. We live in a world where this is the conversation. We have governments and agencies and all sorts of people who can hack into things and know your life and deal with your bank accounts. And we get unbelievably nervous about this idea of self-privacy and protection. We live in a world where more and more of that is eroding as technology grows. And so we as human beings go, hold on. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with the idea that there's someone out there who can do anything he wants, like call me. Or ordain me. Like, he seems too powerful. Now, I agree with you. I would spend my life, and so would you, fighting against any person that had absolute authority. Unless. Unless that person is fully holy and fully love. See, unlike every government agency, unlike everyone else we have problems with that may have more power than us, let us remember who God is. God is without sin, and God is love, the love we just described. And I want to be owned by that God, because he's going to lead my life and my family's life way better than I would, because there is no shadow in him, and there is lots of shadow in me. And so he comes and he says, yes, I am supreme and all-controlling. And yes, I have authority. But you know, listen closely, you know I'm trustworthy. And you say, well, John, how do I know that I know that I know that God is okay? Well, it's in the next verse. Look look in verse 6. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
which he freely gave us or has given us in the one he loves. Okay, here's the point of this passage. Everyone ready? God the Father eternally loves Jesus the Son. Here's very important. Listen, please. God the Father is fully revealed through Jesus. How do we know that God is okay? Because we know God fully through Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God in flesh. And Jesus is perfect. And Jesus is loving. And if you want to know if God is trustworthy, you look upon the face of Jesus and you will know. But the power of this goes beyond that. This is what's being declared in this passage this morning. That God the Father's eternal love that he has for God the Son... And God's Son's eternal love for the Father. When we get included into Jesus, we get included in that love relationship forever. Hold on. We need some Pentecostals in here. <laughs> Let me say this again. As a created human being, a fallen, rebellious human being, we get not only included in Jesus, we get included in the love that God the Father had for Jesus forever. There we go. This, how could a created thing ever have the privilege or right to be loved like that? And the answer is because our God, unlike every other God and every other faith, is truly love. It is the distinguishing factor between idolatry and truth. Our God is a good God. Paul keeps going in verse 7. Read it along with me if you've got a Bible. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with his riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Oh, how I love the word redemption, to be set free, the word deliverance, to be bought back as a slave, to be set free after a battle. See, here's the beautiful thing. Since Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the, risen from the dead, when we trust in Jesus, we get redemption. We get bought back from what? Our own self, our own sin, the world itself. Death is no longer the end. When we die, the resurrection is ours. And also we are bought back from the evil one. Like Lori was preaching last week, we get to declare to the enemy of our souls and to our own hearts and everyone else, we have redemption through Jesus Christ. It says in verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, he made, mo he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. See, not only if, a, if you're a Christian this morning, are you a saint and called and elected and also received and forgiven and reconciled and bought back. Oh no, there's more. God chooses to enlighten us. The idea here in Scripture is we do not have the spiritual ability to understand. God comes and he enlightens us. What does God enlighten the world and us to? It is this. The mystery of God has been fully revealed in Jesus. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was not just so we get to get saved and go to heaven one day and sing some cool songs. The mystery of God is this. God not only loves you, and not only loves us together. Are you ready? God loves his whole creation. God loves the earth we're standing on. God loves all the trees and all the birds and all the elephants. He even liked the dodo bird that's gone. He likes them all. And guess what he's going to do? When Jesus comes back and he makes all things right, 
He is going to restore all of creation, including us who trust in him, back to what was lost. This is the mystery of God. No more pollution. No more drug dealing. No more wars. No more death. No more sex trafficking anymore. No more abuse. No more marital breakdown. It is going to be done. And it started on the cross of Christ. And when he rose from the dead, it was the beginning of the end to all the things that haunt us. This is the mystery of the love of God revealed through the scriptures to the world. Powerful. And so he says, he says these words. He says in verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. He appoints this to us. He, he moves us towards himself. And then he says these words. He says in verse 13, And you also, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. You know, we miss this because we live in Ajax or Durham or Toronto. But 2,000 years ago, Jews and non-Jews didn't play well together. They actually hated each other at points. And something radical was happening. Religious Jews and secular Jews and religious Greeks and secular Greeks and Romans and on and on it went started meeting Jesus and started doing church together like this. Three weeks earlier, they didn't like each other. Now they're brothers and sisters. And see, what Paul is saying is, don't you see? Don't you see that anyone who wants to encounter the living God can now do it through Jesus the Son? You also, he's writing to a mostly non-Jewish church. You also, because Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they had already done this. He's saying now to you also, you were included when you what? You believe the gospel. You know, I love the word the gospel. The word gospel is an awesome word. If you're under 35, it's an epic word, right? If you're under 25, it's cooler than what's going on with foxes online. You'll know exactly what I mean. No, really. Hear this. The word gospel is a churchy word that's lost its power. Let me bring the power back this morning. Ready? Here it is. The word gospel is a technical word. It was a word used for two situations. It was used when the heir of a king was born. It would be announced, good news. The line of succession continues. Here's the other thing. It was used before technology, before phones and Twitter and Facebook, when someone actually had to run and tell you something. It was used by a herald who would run back from the battlefield and say, the kingdom has been saved. No more invasion is coming. We've won the war. See, Paul says, you have been included in the good news when you accepted Christ. Well, what's the good news? Who's the heir of the king? His name is Jesus, Christmas. Who has he overcome? Easter. Good Friday and Easter, he's overcome death, Satan, and hell. Our good news is a king has been born. He's overcome the evil one, overcome you, overcome your sin, overcome death. And the good news for you and the world is when you say yes to Jesus, you're included in all that. He says not only are you included in Christ, but then he says this even more. And this is where we end this section today. But when you believe, verse 13, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance and to the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
See, this is the point when you say yes to God because he calls you and you say yes back to him. God possesses you. God moves into your heart and you get possessed by the Holy Spirit. Now, without the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. You're not saved. You're still condemned. You're not a child of God. You're not adopted. You cannot call God Father, let alone Dad. Only through the Spirit of Christ revealed do things make sense. See, here, here's how it goes. No Spirit, no Jesus. No Jesus, no Father. Ready? No Father, no relationship. No relationship, no, no, no life. If you do not have the Spirit of God in you, you're not a child of God. But when the Spirit of God moves into you, all of what I've been preaching becomes true about you. Now, I love the idea... I love the idea of the Holy Spirit being called a seal. Let me explain why. Everyone ready? Here's the first thing. In ancient times, when law was about to happen, priests or leaders would take wax. Many of you have heard this. And they would take formal wax, a type of wax, and they'd put it on a document. And they'd take a signet ring or a stamp, and they'd stamp it into the wax. And right when that happened, it became law. And this is saying right when you believed and the Holy Spirit came into your heart, you got sealed by God. It is a declaration that what he has done in you is never going away. Here's the second example of being sealed. It's the word branded. It's like cattle. When you go, well, I've never done this, walk around a thousand cattle, no clue. But I've seen on National Geographic. (laughs) Right? When you see cattle, they're all branded. Why? Because you need to know who owns what head of cattle. This is declaring, if you're a Christian this morning, you have been branded in your soul by God. You're branded. You are declared owned. The last idea is tattoo. Hold on. I'm not writing up things, by the way. 225. I want you to understand this. It says in the scriptures that we are sealed. So waxed, stamped, or branded. Or here's the other thing. We're tattooed. It is declaring, this is what the kingdom of darkness sees. This is what God sees. I want you to see this. Like, this is the reality. All of you who don't like tattoos, sorry, you're tattooed. Ooh, all the 20-somethings, yes! Take that, Dad. Okay, we'll talk about rebellion later. Okay, so, but I want you to see this. This is a declaration that when the Spirit of God moves into us, we are declared owned. And what are we owned till? We're owned until the day of redemption. See, when the Spirit of God moves into you, listen, and you are sealed, and you are branded, and you are tattooed, it is till Jesus returns. You can't kick God out of his own house. You can't do it. Your sin isn't big enough. You can't can't lose your salvation. You didn't earn it. Right here, marked, sealed, branded. And, And why? Because God loves us. This is the power of our gospel. And then he says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit. See, this is like God coming and saying, okay, you're a house. That was a great analogy from Lori. And the Holy Spirit is the first down payment on the mortgage. And then God says, not only am I giving you the down payment, this is awesome, In time, I'm also going to pay off the whole house. And it's till the day of redemption. Now you say, okay, John, that's a lot of heady stuff. I heard most of what you said. So what? Well, let me tell you something this morning, church. This matters. It matters this big. Let me tell you why. Because our unity 
in our church is grounded here. I want you to hear this this morning. Most families and most churches get unity wrong because they always think it's about us. No, no. Our unity is another person's work that brought us together. And we have to start with him and his work before we get to us. So let me start by saying this. This series is called Ephesians, the Extraordinary. Or the Extraordinary, depending on how you say the word. Okay. So let me say this. When you read this this morning, I hope you see for the first time or all over again that we have an extraordinary God. An extraordinary God. Let me remind you, we've got a God in our movement of grace. We've got a God of love in our movement. A God that comes after us when we're not even looking for him. We've got a rescuing God. We've got a true dad as a God. We've got a saving God. We've got a selfless God. We've got a God that is nothing less than extraordinary. How could we not, as Christians, when we take this at its face value, not give our life to him, How could we not worship him and give our money and time to How could we not come to church ready to sing and worship to a God that has allowed us to know him, that has saved us, reconciled us? Like, this is a God worthy of all my time and my praise and everything. How good he is compared to anything else. How good he is. Never forget the extraordinary God we worship. And you will know the extraordinary side of God when you start believing what he has done in your life. Let me say that again. You will start believing, not just intellectually, you will know how extraordinary our God is when you start believing what he said over you. Our God is extraordinary, but our unity is also extraordinary. Let me say this again this morning. We together are saints. This is truth. We together are and have experienced grace. We together have peace. We together are included in Christ. We together are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We together are seated with him. We together are chosen and called and foreknown. We together are adopted. We together are children of God. We together have redemption. We together have forgiveness. We together are sealed by the Spirit of God. We together are God's possession. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing at all. Not angels or demons. Not past present or future. Our identity can never be removed. Our identity can never be eroded away or taken away. We for now and forever are saints. We are children of God. We have hope and nothing can bring a charge against us. This is what is declared over you this morning. But we have to choose to walk in this and make our decisions through this and to see others through the lens of this. Our unity is here. Let me explain this. If this is true, church, then I am called to view you and you are called to view me through this lens. See, it's a lot easier to slander someone, lie, exaggerate, don't forgive, hold bitterness in your heart when you think they're not these things. But I want the whole church, as we start the major theme of unity this year, to hear this. It's a lot harder to say to God, I'm not forgiving that person when you know that God in his sovereignty decided that person was worth forgiveness, reconciliation, and redemption. It's really hard to say I have the right not to like that person across the aisle 
When, when you suddenly realize God before the beginning of time decided, wow, I really love that person. Or let me put it crassly this way. You're going to spend eternity with them forever. Get used to them now. <laughs> right? Yeah, me too. Surprise. Forever. Forever. <laughs> no, like, catch this. Our unity, church, not C4, our unity here isn't based on the style of worship we have. It's, it's good. It's not based on our particular view on secondary issues of theology, though, you know, we think we're right and others are wrong. Like, right? Right? No, every church does. It's, it's, it's not based on our dress code here or our lack of it. No, no, th- those are all fun. Those are family things. Our unity is based on God the Father's calling, God the Son's work, and God the Holy Spirit's possession. That is our unity as a church. And when we start viewing each other, even when we're struggling, through the lens of this, unity will go through the roof. Why? Because we will realize that if God's, God's love was so deep for them, then I have to be very careful how I treat one of God's sons or daughters. One of the most humbling things in my life, because I've, you know, I struggle with anger, Sometimes I've really lost it, right, in my house. And I've been rude to my wife or my kids, but especially my wife. And I remember once God prompting me and saying, John, that is my daughter. Yeah, uh oh. <laughs> That's the way you use the word epic fail, yes. I, and I went, oh, yeah, she is. She's my wife, but she's actually your daughter first. See, I want to bring this to you, the church, this morning. As we talk about unity, start walking around the building and start looking at each other and saying, chosen, called, for no one, elected, loved, redeemed, bought, sealed. It will build our unity. That's not saying we don't have different gifts. It doesn't say we don't need to work our stuff through. It doesn't mean we don't need to confront each other in love. All I'm saying is start there. We have an extraordinary God who's worth our worship. We have an extraordinary unity that goes beyond us, so our unity isn't bound to us. It's somewhere else, so it's never going to be eroded. And here's the last thing. We have an extraordinary, we have an extraordinary gospel. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. That Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven because he's the only one who can deal with all the stuff. And I want to say this morning, some of you are sitting here in half dark, and you've been listening to all this, and I want to say, you may have the title Christian or not, you may be a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Baha'i, a Muslim. You may be an atheist, a spiritualist, a Wiccan. You may be a person who thinks they're a Christian, but it's an ethnic thing. I want to say to you this morning that if you would turn your life and stop trusting in you and stop trust, trusting in what you do or stop trusting in your power or stop trusting in your education, if you would humble yourself today and you would say to Jesus Christ, no other name, to him, I want you to save me and be my Lord and Savior, Everything I've preached becomes true about you. If God is calling you now, yeah, you can clap, it's true, it's good. Yeah. If you would do this at this moment, where you would say at this moment, yes, I want to be loved by God. I want to be a child of God. I want my, my future to be secure in a hand that can never falter. It's not about pride, but saying I'm good enough. It's about saying I'm not good enough. And so church, would you pray fervently right now while I invite people If that's you, and you feel God's calling on you at this moment, then just at this moment, pray this prayer. Jesus Christ, I didn't expect this this morning in a blacked out church. But if you are what that guy just said, 
I want you. So I, I'm done living my life. I, I repent of sin. I turn from a life without you, either a dark life or a life that I thought was great, but is so about me. And I say yes now to Jesus Christ. I confess that I believe that you are God. I believe that you died. I believe that you've risen from the dead and that you've chosen to forgive me. I accept your work in my life. Forgive me of my sin. I want to be a child of yours. Father, call me. Jesus, cover me. Holy Spirit, possess me. This day, I become a follower of Jesus. Can you just say simply in your heart, uh, amen to that. If you prayed that this morning, find a pastor, go to one of the desks. We have something for you, like a Bible, just to get you started. And so as the worship half team, mini team, acoustic team comes up, I just want to say this. As they get up, can we pray something together also as a church? Could we pray that our eyes are open to the grandeur of our God? And could we pray for our unity? Would you stand with me to do that this morning? And again, as we say, you know, uh, you can extend your hands, you can cover your face, you can kneel. But all those postures are biblical. Take your shoes off. It's a sign of holiness. And let's pray together these words. God, thank you that you decided to love us. And just as as a church right now, as a group of broken people, thank you. And Lord, my prayer over my brothers and sisters as you are doing a unique thing in this God season in our church is that the greatness and the grandeur of our God would grow more and more and more. Like this, I pray that I and my friends, like we would really know how good you are, how loving you are, how powerful you are. I pray also in Jesus' name that our unity would now be found more and more in the work of God and not in our own attempts. Holy Spirit, we are inviting you every time we're about to break unity in our church to show up and remind us of your love for that individual or that leader or that connect group leader or that person. Oh God, I pray and we pray together, Jesus, keep doing what you're doing in our church. Build unity that's unnatural. Thank you for your love, kindness, mercy, and support. We ask, Lord, you'd keep going and not relent until the church looks like what you want. In Jesus' name, amen.